your noses to the grindstone, day after day. You spend your work hours overworked and underappreciated, only to return home and deal with bills, landlords, and the ever-oppressive shadow of capitalism consuming you and everything you love. The horrors of capitalism are the horrors we all face, and they are confronted head-on in Pearl Iscariot, tales of horror and class warfare. Contained within are 19 tales of capitalism gone wrong, from designer children to deadly bosses, predatory lenders to plague-ridden laborers, stories from the dark imaginations of Haley Piper, Laurel Hightower, Joanna Koch, and many more. You won't want to miss it. Pearl Iscariot, Coming International Workers' Day, May 1st. Here at HorrorOasis.com, we are advocates of the horror genre and strive to amplify underrepresented voices in the horror community. This space is for indie artists to promote their work. Please enjoy your stay, and hopefully it's not your last. Deadhead Space, part of Silver Shamrock's Horrorcast, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unburying the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Ghana, YouTube, and all other major platforms. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And today we're talking with the author of Gulf, her debut novel into the horror genre, Shelley Campbell. Say hi, Shelley. Hello, everyone. What got you into horror? Ooh, that's an interesting one because I'm kind of new to the horror world. I didn't read a ton of horror when I was a kid other than like the classic uh, Stephen King. Everyone's read a bit of Stephen King. Um, but when we were kids, we didn't have a lot of channels on TV. And my parents were always super into stuff like the X-Files and the Outer Limits and uh, even the old Alfred Hitchcock uh, shows. So it, there was always like something creepy on. Um, so I probably got into that uh, through those TV shows. Uh, and my mom's like a real jump scare kind of gal. If you drove somewhere with her at night and there's like a tree hanging over the road, she'd be like, oh, look at that, kids. That almost looks like a hand hanging over, doesn't it? And then she'd just let out a blood-curdling scream. She loved getting jump scares out of people. So <laughs> she still does. So maybe that had something to do with it, too. <laughs> Although there's not a lot of good jump scares in books. <laughs> it's pretty, yeah, that's that's pretty hard to do, Brennan. <laughs> Brennan, take us away. I, I gotta, I gotta hear your thoughts. Uh, I'm just digging the, uh, the, the tree looks like a hand bit. Sounds like you were conditioned from an early age, whether you like it or not. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you describe yourself as a speculative fiction writer, uh, tending toward the literary, but also with dollops of oddity. 
And, and truth be told, I mean, that just, to me, that sounds like you're tiptoeing around horror anyway. All of those things are elements of horror. So when you first started writing, um, tell us a little bit about that, about your first experiences with storytelling. Um, you're right. Uh, my stuff always did tiptoe around horror. Um, my parents got called into the principal's office when I was like in elementary school and not for like any of the cool reasons your parents would get called into the principal's office. But it'd be like the English teacher being like, she wrote another story again, <laughs> a dark one. And can you tell her to stop doing that sort of thing? So I think I always liked and my response to them when they asked me about it, and this was like in grade four or five was like, well, not all stories have happy endings you know <laughs> and so <laughs> I think maybe my horror writing was discouraged a bit early on but <laughs> uh, I, I always had even um, my other writing there's always a little bit of a bent to the dark side and I think it's because I've kind of lead a really sheltered light life so it's fun to explore the dark side of things having never had to experience much horror myself personally. <laughs> I like the two ways that could have possibly gone too. you know, somebody telling you that, uh, you know, you should really put a little smile in your story <laughs> and, and you say you getting cowed, basically saying, OK, I guess I mean, versus the alternative of saying, you know, have you ever seen a movie meant for anybody older than seven? Because there's, you know, there's a lot of stories out there and if they all ended the same way. My God, that would be boring. Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, I'm glad you, you chose the latter path. It's a more interesting path. Even even childhood movies, though. We've talked about this with a previous guest about how, like, you know, Bambi, for example. Like, that right out the gate. Mother's yeah. dead. Yeah. Lots of dead parents in Disney movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best. So, I want to jump. I want to skip through talking about golf just for a moment and go to the very ending where it describes you. Can you... <laughs> Just dive into any of the areas where, whether it's sailing or being a pilot. So I haven't done too much of either of those. Uh, I went. I wanted to sail on a tall ship bark because it, it did uh, world tours. It's called the Picton Castle, uh, based out of Lunenburg in Nova Scotia, and it was refitted as a. Um, an old minesweeper ship from World War II. It wasn't originally a tall ship by the same people that made the Blue Nose too. that's on like the Canadian dime. Uh, so I thought it was really cool and romantic that they went around the world and I thought I want to go sail with them, but I don't want to go around the world. <laughs> and they did like two or three week tours up the Eastern seaboard where they did tall ship festivals and you could join them for that as a part of the working crew. So I thought two or three weeks, that sounds about like my slice of pie. Uh, <laughs> I get seasick pretty easily, but other than that, <laughs> I enjoyed it. Uh, like I said in my bio, my stomach doesn't enjoy a lot of the things I enjoy. <laughs> um, and then as far as the pilot, same thing. I love flying. Uh, I just don't love when I'm flying the plane. So I didn't get too far into my pilot's license before it got expensive. And my stomach was like, I don't like this as much as you like this. Uh, but I never got sick when the instructor was doing the spins and stalls and all that sort of stuff you used to learn uh and when you were getting your private pilot's license i only got sick when i was doing it so my stomach just didn't trust me i guess <laughs> well and you're not talking about flying from point a to point b you know you're talking about barrel rolls and stuff like that of course <laughs> I, I don't think there's a, a lot out there a lot of people out there that uh their stomachs are you know really down for that so well this was uh, i'm aging myself 
this was like 20 or 30 years ago and they've taken some of this stuff out of like the curriculum if you're getting your private pilot's license but when I took it like your very first introductory flight they took off this is like you've never flown before your second <laughs> flight they're like you want to take off your third flight you took off and by like the fourth or fifth flight they're like you're landing let's do some spins and stalls and stuff like that it, they really threw you right into it I don't think spins are something they encourage now in private pilot's license they just say you're not supposed to get into them uh, but back then they're like yeah let's put enough sky between us and the ground and just have at her <laughs> simpler do you, times yeah. do you have any uh, family times. members that were in a is it the air force in canada i'm not too sure am i making that it up is, yeah uh, my grandpa was in the air force uh so he took us to lots of air shows when we were little and that's probably where the love of flying came from my dad had his private pilot's license for a while so we flew around with him a bit when we were little yeah. nice now, I know very little about uh, aircraft, but I think you said you flew a Cessna 172. What What's that like? What kind of plane is that? That's just a plane, Jane, probably almost everything you see in the sky. It's like the workhorse. It's the Ford of, of the flying world. So it's just like a four-seater top wing plane. It's pretty steady. It doesn't like doing aerobatic stuff, so you really had to fight it to make uh, it do spins and stalls and anything aerobatic. If you have enough sky between you and the ground and you let go of all the controls, it'll always just naturally go back to straight and level flight if it can. So that was a good one for people to learn on. <laughs> good and dependable. Yeah. <laughs> Spe speaking of flying, like the on your website, it's got your art. Mm. It's unreal. You got quite the interesting style. You it seems like there's nothing you can't draw. You got these neat drags that kind of look like a mix and a match of uh, different types of dinosaurs. You got nice scenic uh, beach with uh, two girl looks like two girls. Yeah. I mean, uh, this who's this guy with the beard? Hasev. Oh, that's a character sketch from my fantasy novel. My uh, that's God. also where the dragons came from too. So. Those <laughs> are cool. Thing. Good thing about when you're uh, um, querying for any fiction is if you've got downtime and can't write, it's like, oh, I'll make character <laughs> sketches instead. That'll fill up some time. <laughs> you got really interesting designs on dragons, though. Usually they got one or two different looks to them, and I, I gotta say, I've never seen these kinds before. Did, did you make those up, or...? Yeah, pretty much. I wanted something a little bit different, more dinosaur-looking sort of thing. Um, yeah, and just kind of rolled with it. Yeah. So are you, I know not with golf, but are you your own uh, cover artist and interior artist? I wanted to be uh, for Under the Lesser Moon, my fantasy, uh, Grimdark Fantasy. It's out with Mythos and Ink. It's been out about five months now. Uh, and originally I'd ask like, hey, I do art. Maybe I could slide in there. And they were very politely like, yeah, sure. Give us something to look at. Uh, but it turns out it's like cover art is like a total different skill set than just regular art right like there's such pros on what fonts work properly and everything so they ended up letting me submit something and then they ended up subbing out to a place uh, to do cover art as well and then when they showed me the cover art that the other guy had done I'm like oh no yeah like this is awesome <laughs> totally go with his art this is way better than anything I could have made uh, we were they were gonna they were really gracious they were gonna put um, interior um, art of mine in the character sketches uh, but COVID times uh, they couldn't get art author proofs and they'd never done anything with art on the inside before so they're like we don't want to risk it if we've never seen it and we can't get a proof so they said maybe when there's an anniversary first year anniversary edition we'll include some art 
Can you tell us about Under the Lesser Moon? Because it looks like it, it says book one, so I'm curious how many books you have in mind yeah. and uh, anything that you want to tell us about the story. You said Grim, uh, was it Grim Dark? That's yeah, it's some... Grim Dark Fantasy. I have, for those of you that have video, I've got the sweet cover there. For those of you that don't have video, you're just going to have to look it up yourselves. Audio listeners are, uh, we should go to the video too. Watch both of them if you want. You know? There we yeah, go. Real quick, I, I'm going to jump in because we just talked about your artwork. Uh, your if, if people listening want to see what we're talking about, it's Shelly Campbell author and art.com. Is that right? Yep. Okay. I'll put that on the show notes. Yeah. And I'm also, a lot of my art's on Instagram as well. I don't do a ton of book stuff on Instagram. I should get into it more. And that's uh, Shelly Campbell fine art at Instagram. Uh, but yeah, Under the Lesser Moon, like you said, it's a grim, dark fantasy. Uh, it's about a Christ. He's a boy who realizes he's, he's, he's being raised as a sacrifice by his tribe to win back uh, their goddess and her dragons. So their world's pretty brutal. Um, there's what's a time when dragons were really common, but now they're going extinct and people are starving uh, and they worship this goddess and think that the dragons are her angels and they can't figure out why they're disappearing. So they start making more and more drastic sacrifices. <laughs> I had to bite my tongue a few times because I said in my head, holy shit, I fucking want that. <laughs> oh, my God, that sounds amazing. I'm not kissing your ass. That sounds right up my alley. And if it's uh, if people aren't into big series, it's just a duology. Uh, so the oh. second is coming out this November. So you're not tied in to wait for a long time if you want to read the sequel. So working on the sequel for it now. There may be other books set in the same world, but not with the same characters. So just two books for this story arc. Insert George R.R. Uh, R. Martin joke, but we won't yeah. say it in case he uh, ever wants to come on. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I hear he's busy. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, who are your influences when it comes to fantasy? Or maybe is it non-fantasy writers that influence you for this? When I was in high school, I read a lot of Anne McCaffrey, like Dragon Rider Supern, and hers is more upbeat. There's, there's not too much grimdark about, about Anne's stuff. <laughs> but uh, I liked how she set it up that uh, dragons had like a symbiotic relationship with people. They needed each other. And I kind of go for the same thing with a different angle in this book. Um, there's a reason for each of them to exist and why they exist together and why you see touches of dragons in every human myth. It's pretty cool. Yeah, as soon as you uh, as soon as you said the idea of uh, dragons and people having a kind of a symbiosis, I thought of um, Naomi Novik's work. Yes, um, she, I'm a big fan of hers. You have only read the first one. I think it's Her Majesty's Dragon. But yeah, that was really cool where they're just imagining the Napoleonic era, but with dragons instead. So there was yeah. literally like dragon air forces. And yeah, that was a cool read. For listeners, aka me. What the hell? What's the book about? <laughs> so I've only oh, read the exactly what she said. Series, but yeah, oh. it's like if it's set in like the Napoleonic era during the war, but it, everyone has dragons. Uh, so there's like literal dragon air forces, and the English and the French are fighting, and that, but there's dragons. <laughs> I was gonna ask. So do, it covers the uh, Indian Wars. I'm not sure uh, what the more the series goes into. I've only read the first one, but oh, okay, that sounds really neat. It was so, really you cool. Know, to Shelley's point earlier about not roping listeners in with more than a duology, I had the same thing. I read the first book, 
I loved it. And then I looked at how many books there were in the series and I said, maybe someday. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's intimidating, right? When there's oh, a lot of books, like, I don't know if I'm up for all this. <laughs> uh, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you, but there's a fair few. Are you looking You're Googling up? it, aren't you? No, I was waiting for you. I thought you were Googling. <laughs> okay, let's move on. So do you want to dive into uh, golf? Anyone? Sure, I might as well. <laughs> Hopefully I'm the resident <laughs> pro on golf. Why don't you You're the tell... expert. That's why we brought you in. <laughs> why don't you tell us all about here? it? So golf is about David. David's 17. And you know how most teens go through this phase where they kind of feel virtually invisible. They want to have like a big effect on the world, but they feel like no one sees them. Uh, for David, it's actually happening. He's turning more and more invisible. So his parents like forget him. Like they forget him at school. They don't set out a plate for him at supper. They forget his birthday. Like all the things that you remember maybe happening to you once as a kid, but it keeps happening to him over and over again. Um, so they rent a cabin that they lease every summer and this summer when they go there's been an addition built onto the cabin they usually rent with a locked door. David's the one that finds a key thinking he's just going to get a sweet new bedroom in the cabin and it actually opens up into these alternate mirror dimensions so it's his world uh, in different times and he's always at the cabin but sometimes it's like the 1960s and sometimes it's in the 2000s and this world is always empty it's just been recently raised of something that only comes out at night uh, so at first he feels more at home in the invisible world than he does in his own and then it gets scary because there's stuff that's trying to get through the door at night and he can't even alert anyone in his world to what's happening because he's just getting more and more invisible so he's put in a pretty helpless situation <laughs> now you wrote about uh, you had a, quite a few references to jfk do you is that a president in that era that you the 60s the early 60s that you're kind of uh into more so than others um, I think probably part of that was a lot of the inspiration for golf itself came from Stephen King's 112263. Oh my god. I, I yes. love that book. And I was like, man, he's not going to be able to go back to the 60s in his world and read a newspaper or anything, have that not come up. Um, and again, uh, David's a little younger than I am. Uh, and when I was a little kid, that's when they were doing like the big anniversary of it came up again. So we hadn't been, we didn't remember uh, JFK getting shot as kids, but we remembered all the anniversaries coming up on, on the news and, and how awful this was and not really having a firm grasp as a kid on what, what had happened. Um, so yeah, I thought it was something it'd be interesting to insert into golf. That is my favorite. One of my favorite Stephen King. I don't know which one of my favorite is now that I said that, but that's one of my favorite. Top three. Yeah, yeah, mine too. It's like the. I'm not gonna ruin it. I encourage people to read that. Uh, but the ending of the alternative of what would happen if he lived. I'm not sure what's more fucked up: our plague-ridden, racist world, or like that version of yeah. JFK living. <laughs> It's the classic like archetype time travel, right? There's actually that time travel archetype that's called Kill Hitler because half the time travels ever made were go back and kill Hitler, right? And this one was a uh, go back and save JFK and and most of the Kill Hitler time travel archetypes it doesn't work out too well either. <laughs> you know what? I, I episode one I had this conversation with Lex H. Jones and I don't think Hitler would it, it, there would be a lot of bad shit still happening. I, I'm gonna just dive into this real quick and I'll shut the hell up. <laughs> because his his number two in in command was um, Himmler, 
And that was a dude that also was... Also a uh, nice guy. Yeah, he was directly <laughs> responsible for most of the uh, death camps. He, if you kill Hitler, that dude's going to be probably twice as bad. There's always another cockroach behind the king cockroach. Yep. <laughs> Brian, why don't you talk, uh, talk, talk about golf, man? Oh, you'd like me to follow uh, th- those comments up? Okay, sure. I don't know how to se- I don't know how to segue, so I'm just gonna say, "Here you go, Brendan." Actually, you started diving into it. My my first question was, "What kind of inspired the story?" And you know, you said there's a little bit of eleven twenty two sixty three in there, but what what other thoughts did you have to kind of put that spin on it? Uh, one of the things that inspired golf is it started out as a short story and it was just an online prompt contest. And all the contest was, was um, your character finds a key t- to a locked door and they're the only one to get inside. Uh, so I wrote golf as a short story based on that. Um, and then uh, critique partners, I shared it with them and they liked it. Um, never really went anywhere as a short story. And I kept coming back to it and going like, I really like this character. I think it would be way more than a short story. Um, so yeah, that was probably probably what it mainly inspired it was it started off as a short story turned into an outline and went from there so behind the scenes with silver shamrock is some of you might not know but kenneth kane kenneth w kane's one that edits most books ken mckinley the guy that runs silver shamrock he edited your book how walk us through the whole process from submitting the manuscript to working with ken so I subbed the manuscript to Silver Shamrock and probably five or six of my other favorite uh, places. Uh, for a while, I had a hard time figuring out what exactly golf was because it kind of toes the edge. I'm like, I usually write fantasy, but it's not really fantasy. Um, it's kind of horror, but most hardcore horror people are going to think it's not that scary because it's kind of quiet. Uh, so I subbed it to a few different places um, and uh Ken got back to me probably about six months after I subbed, which was pretty sweet timing. Uh, I had an, another offer on it from another place, but they just weren't a really great fit. Uh, yeah, and, and he said he loved it. Uh, probably ended up subbing golf, probably about 75 queries out uh, for it. Uh, so it was getting to the point where our critique partners and I, like not that 75 queries is anything incredible for querying uh but it got to the point where our critique partners were joking uh, with each other saying maybe is david like really invisible does no one even see this uh so it was super refreshing for ken to come along and be like yes i like it I'm like oh okay like someone does see him <laughs> it is an actual story uh yeah and then when he took it from there uh, he was very gentle with his edits. Uh, I have had other works uh, under the lesson room. I did substantial edits for it was my first book and it was an obvious first try effort. Uh, so the editor there were, were really nice, but basically we rewrote, rewrote that from scratch. Uh, so golf was a nice experience because uh, Ken was mostly happy with the story. So there wasn't too many huge edits to do. Uh, and it was all stuff that was pretty easy to put in place. And once I got my edit letter, it was like, Ooh, okay, that wasn't as bad as I thought. He was wasn't like scrap it it sucks Rewrite the whole thing <laughs> not that that's what my other publishers said <laughs> and then we got the cover by keelan patrick burke which is right behind brennan's left shoulder pretty sweet cover yeah i'm in love with that yeah keelan patrick burke is just a king man <laughs> Yeah, he's kind of all over everything. He's one of the top dogs, I think, in the horror community as far as cover designs go. Brennan, you got any follow-ups? 
Yeah, I mean, as far as working with Silver Shamrock, not questions so much, but just, um, you know, I know Kane is usually the person who does most of the the edits on these, but, uh, you know, Ken McKinley edited one of my favorite Silver Shamrock books, um, Prisoners of Stuartville by uh, Shannon Felton. So, you know, obviously he's got the chops as well, and, you know, your book was in good hands with him, and I'm, I'm glad he wasn't too mean to you. Um <laughs> You know, I will say, Shelley, I don't even know if you remember this, but when my um, when when Ken bought my book, which is coming out in July, uh, you were one of the very first people to jump on the comment section and say, welcome to the Silver Sh- Shamrock family. And, you know, the, even months later, that stuck with me. So I appreciate that. Oh, awesome. I'm glad. I was just so thrilled to be part of the family myself. It was just that <laughs> awkward, loud person being like, hey, everyone. <laughs> so, yeah, you've got a Slatterly Falls coming out soon, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, like, I, but until you said it, I didn't think of it in that way as like, you know, a family. But, it, you know. I'm looking, this is a really good publisher who, you know, I've got like Tim Meyer behind me. We've got, uh, you know, Stephanie Ellis, Ronald Kelly, all these great names. And, you know, uh, to see my name, to see your name on a book that comes from a publisher that puts out these really, you know, high quality stuff. It's a good feeling. And yeah, it's a family. What the hell? Let's call it that. I hear you. (laughs) I feel like I'm like, oh, I kind of snuck in the side door here and I don't think anyone actually knows I'm along for the ride. <laughs> Just going to be quiet and hang out with all these cool people and maybe they won't notice. <laughs> <laughs> so I- I'm going to kind of sidestep golf for a minute and we can come back if Patrick has more. But um, so you have, uh, you know, you had the uh, first book in your fantasy series come out, you said five months ago, I think. Yeah, it was around November, yep. Yep, golf comes out uh, a couple days before this recording airs, and then you have the second book coming out in you know later this year in the fantasy series, and you have a fourth book coming out in like October. So you know what's the deal that you're just completely unleashing on the world? <laughs> just had a lot of backstock, I guess. Um, so for Under the Lesser Moon, I kind of already written the whole series. Uh, it needed a lot of work. Uh, so it's something that is on the back burner for a long time. Golf was actually something I wrote while I was subbing Under the Lesser Moon. And Under the Lesser Moon was out on sub for probably like two years. Uh, it had a at one point an offer on it, but then uh, the person never actually sent a contract for almost a year. Um, so uh, it, it, it was a slow going and golf filled in the time there. Uh, and then the fourth book I'm writing is actually with my uh, editor at Mythos and Inc. that published Under the Lesser Moon. Uh, and they had me do some um, nonfiction like blogs on their website as a guest blogger. And she liked my blog so much that she said, do you want to write like a field guide to writing uh, fantasy and science fiction for me because I love some of the research articles you're doing and I thought that sounds like so much fun and I forget so much stuff as what's good uh, for a writer uh, that I'm like wow that'd be great I'd love to write a book like that and then just read it over and over again because I'm not going to remember any of the stuff I researched <laughs> as to how to make you a better science fiction and fantasy writer uh, so that's been really fun to research uh, and yeah that one's going to be out uh, sometimes toward the end of the year too but probably my only non fiction <laughs> making so myths and magic a field guide to write sci-fi and fantasy novels i like the cover it's really neat yeah it's really cool and it's been so much fun to work on like i said half the fun is you know as a writer you always want to research your craft and get better at it and this and i have to, i'm actually being forced to do that chapter by chapter now <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm so, on the timeline. <laughs> when writing a series, and you know it's going to be a series, let's just say fantasy, whatever the subgenre is, would you advise doing what you did, writing it all out? Because uh, just to put our kind of backstory into it, Brian and I wrote one 50,000-word story, and we're like, there's more here. We waited a month, and then we wrote another 110,000 words, and we're like, all right, we got the whole thing. Um, for me personally, I like that because I can foreshadow uh, in earlier parts or whatever. So I like that approach, but I'm curious what, what your, your advice would be. I've been told by professionals that that shouldn't be the approach you have because if nobody takes it, uh, then you've written all of that. But I'm a kind of person uh, that has to finish what they start. Um, I think I was uh, on Twitter the other day and someone had put a comment up on saying you don't have to finish a book you're reading that you don't like uh, and you don't have to finish a movie you don't like and I'm like I, I can't <laughs> I have to finish <laughs> every book I start every movie I watch to the bitter end and I'm like that with writing if it's a series I need to know where the whole story goes and how it ends uh, and I'm not smart enough to like build things up at the beginning and then come up with it later after the books published I have to know where it's going before I even start querying anywhere so um, although it might be time wasted and no one would pick it up uh, I have to finish I'm, I'm the same I gotta finish what I started uh, just to put some of that like you said foreshadowing in there and and to know where it's going because I'm not really good at doing that on the fly and I think there's a lot of pressure once something's published uh, to do it on the fly. Like you have all this time to come up with your first book. Uh, and then when it gets queried and accepted, if it's a series, now you're on the clock. Like you better get that second one done because you, you're on a timeline now. You have to meet deadlines. <laughs> I don't want to um, offend the person who gave you that advice of, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the idea of, you know, you've wasted your time. But to me, that advice is kind of outdated. Like, I, I completely agree with, you know, what Patrick originally proposed, where, well, obviously, we wrote the damn book together. But um, <laughs> where, you know, when, when we were five chapters in, we didn't know where it was going. And, you know, to be able to follow the thread of the story and then go back and add details that, you know, are pertinent later, that's ideal. But the other thing is, if you sell the first one and it does very modest numbers and the publisher doesn't want a second one. I mean, self-publishing has never been easier. And even if you know, you're not going to sell a billion copies, um, you have, you know, you have that kind of built in market for the, you know, second and third volume or however many you decide to do might not be a huge market, but you know, if you uh, shell out for the editing and the cover and you know, you're at least going to make your money back, it's worth it. Yeah, totally. I agree for sure. Obviously, that's, <laughs> that's what I did was not follow advice. <laughs> so, I mean, you talked about a lot of querying and, you know, trying to find a home for all your books. Was self-publishing ever a consideration? Definitely. I think, especially for Under the Lesser Moon, because Under the Lesser Moon took forever to write. I, I think I started that in high school and then stopped when my kids were born and then picked it up again. And it's like picking up a book that you haven't read in years. You're like, oh, where is this even going? I don't even remember this. So for that one, it's like, okay, you spent on and off like 10 years on this, Shelly. It deserves to like see something better than some dusty folder in your computer until the end of time. So had it not been accepted anywhere uh, for publishing, I would have definitely 
uh, done self-publishing. My satisfaction uh, in publishing books is I want to hold a finished product in my hand. Um, so any way that I could get to that, I would have. I'm just really fortunate that I've had some people along the way that are like, hey, we think this is good enough that we're going to foot the bill for a little bit of it or for all of it, and we're going to take a chance on it. So I lucked out there, but I definitely uh, would have gone the self-publishing route had I exhausted my querying options uh, for these ones. How's the whole experience been, though, working with uh, several publishers? It's been amazing. There's a big contrast. Um, Mythos and Inc. is a smaller publisher, and they don't have a big catalog right now, so they spend a lot of time uh, working up to it. So they know like a year ahead of time this is going to release in November uh, and uh, they take their time and they really spend a lot of time with all of their authors so that's been kind of cool to be almost like the center of attention there uh, and Silver Shamrock was really awesome because it, not that they don't spend time on their authors they're dealing with a lot bigger catalog and they're giving a lot more books homes uh, so it was a faster process it was neat to see like um, whereas I would hear uh, and be working on a book a year ahead of time, almost with Mythos and Ink, with Silver Shamrock. Uh, we signed the contract, and then like two, three months before release, I'm like, so, <laughs> like, should I be working on anything? And everything really went really fast. Uh, it was quite a fast process uh, with Silver Shamrock. So I like them both. It was, it, I, I found it was a neat contrast between working between two different publishers, both very good at what they do, but both tackling it in different ways. And it's neat to see the differences in small businesses and they still both come out with an incredible end product. Yeah. What about you, Brennan? How, how's your, I mean, you're still in the middle of the editing stage, aren't you? Oh, I, we haven't even started the editing stage yet. So oh, we are, okay. we are, we are working on cover design at the moment. We're working on interior art and editing is just around the corner. Well, good luck. Uh, it'll be fast. <laughs> it, I, I, that's yeah. It'll be fast. <laughs> How's the reception been though so far for you, Shelley? For golf, I yeah. haven't got. I haven't heard a lot back yet. Um, so because it's been so fast, uh, so I think Ken ended up getting a bunch of art copies out just this last couple of weeks. So um, I think today was the very first time I saw a review from someone who had not, uh, who I didn't know. <laughs> reading the book so that's pretty cool and would be like oh someone out there I don't even know has read it and enjoys it um the cover everyone loves which is amazing but I can't take credit for that because that's <laughs> all Keelan <laughs> uh, but people seem to be excited about the idea about it there's a lot of people uh that have pre-ordered and seem to be excited for it coming out so it'll be fun oh, to good. see what happens on the 27th and where it goes. I was telling Ken McKinley, it, it's kind of like pushing a little teenager out there into the world and hoping that everyone likes him and he does okay, except hopefully I don't have to like worry about golf drunk driving or bailing him out of jail. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're with Ken, so good luck. Yeah. <laughs> just joking, but not really. Um, I would like to talk about something that just slipped my mind. Brennan, please save me. <laughs> Oh, I thought you, I thought you had a, a a place in mind. I don't remember. <laughs> oh, well, just sit there and think about it until it comes back. No, I'm just kidding with you. Um, actually, Shelley, I'm kind of curious with you. You know, dabbling in multiple mediums, whether it be art or writing. Um, 
I, I was hoping you'd talk a little bit about the creative process. I mean, do you find similarities between sitting down to, you know, do a graphite drawing, uh, sitting down to do a watercolor, or sitting down to write a short story or a novel? I find that they kind of complement each other. When I'm not in the mood to write and the well runs dry on that, I can usually, okay, that's when I want to do art um, and vice versa. Uh, they're different in some ways, though. Art, I find to be a lot... Um, more instant gratification because you can finish even like a really complicated painting in a couple of weeks you can finish a sketch in a couple of hours they're like there look it's done it's out in the world uh, whereas writing is a longer process you're like okay it's gonna be like a year or two until anyone else gets to see this and then half the time by the time everyone else is excited about it you're like yeah i've read it a hundred times already but thanks <laughs> so they're different that way um there's more instant gratification for the art because you're done soon um and but for novels and stuff like that I find the gratification so much more because by the time it's out there in the world um, you put so much work into it it's been so long it's it's more of a build-up um, also I'm a really visual person uh, so I don't see things in my head well uh, I have to draw it out so like I drew out a little schematic of the cabin in golf I draw the dragons and the characters uh, in under the lesser moon otherwise I, I don't know how to render them realistically because I can't see them in my head uh, so I find the art helps with that because I'm not a visual person I have to like if I want to see it in front of me I have to actually draw it in front of me <laughs> I like that. Um, you know, I, I finished um, I finished writing a, a second book that I'm, you know, working on finding a home for right now. And I had the same kind of thought. I was it, it takes place at a motel and I was trying to keep everything straight in my head. I'm like, you know what? Like, I'm, I'm a lousy artist, but I got to draw a picture of what the grounds look like. And, uh, you know, as soon as I, I did that and I start diagramming, here's where, you know, this chapter happens. Here's where, you know, this character is standing when this happens. All of a sudden, it just, you know, it starts flowing. It just makes so much more sense because you can practically see it happening in front of you. Totally. Um, and as far as I love the way you approach kind of the difference between uh, art and writing, saying I have kind of one to fall back on uh, if I get blocked on the other. And, you know, I, I, I forget where I first heard it, but, you know, I heard the suggestion to always have two projects going at once. And I... I, I, you know, granted they're both writing projects, but I might have, you know, a novel going while I have a short story. And for the exact same reason, if I get blocked on one, I go to the other. And that short story, that gives me that, you know, instant or near instant gratification of, you know, I can yeah. bang this out in two weeks and maybe. Yeah, short stories are a lot the same <laughs> as art. I find that too. It's like, oh, look, it's done. And it's just yeah. this quick snapshot. There's usually only a couple of scenes. So it's very art-like short stories. <laughs> that was Absolutely. Um... That was Mallerman. She said. I, I thought it was, but I didn't want yeah. to throw it out there and sound like a ding dong. So although, although jokingly, I'm going to call bullshit on his part. He, that guy works on like ten fucking things at once, man. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's really good, though. It's a it's a fantastic way. And again, this, whether you have two novels, a novel and a short story, or a novel and a painting going, you know, all at once, it's a great way to kind of keep yourself active and creating and not feel like you're either just doing it because, you know, you woke up and you said, well, I have to do this today. Um, and also not feel like you've hit a brick wall. Yeah. It's a nice way to switch gears. Yeah. I also like putting stories away and coming back to them whenever it feels right. Like totally. I, to I told, I, I tell, uh, I update 
Brennan on my uh, what I'm hoping is my debut, and um, I put that away for like almost a year, and I'm glad I did because I learned a lot, and it's a lot to do with the show, talking with a lot of people. But if I worked on that right away, I don't know. It it, it feels like it was good timing, so I think that's just as important for potentially newer writers to hear that yeah, uh totally yeah you don't have to always bang it out within a year or two and uh, my editor with mythos and ink actually said when they took a first round of edits for it and said we're gonna get back to you in about a month on them um don't look at it anytime then just don't even look at it at all um work on something else so yeah i find um really good to come back with a fresh set of eyes on stuff you get too no. close to it. Otherwise, <laughs> when you come back later, you're like you're reading it as a reader, not a writer. <laughs> Absolutely, that's Brennan and I put our book away for a little while. He's working on a few of his own. I'm working on a few of my own. Beta read each other's solo projects, and eventually we'll get back to our collaboration. Um, and I think that'll be good because, like I was just saying about my own work, is you know you you become a better writer the more you other stuff and then you have fresh a fresh set of eyes i don't know that's i'm pretty much parroting what you guys are talking about well and you guys <laughs> must get so much incredible advice uh with the writers you have on you guys have had uh some amazing writers on and it'd be neat with the podcast to just pick up tips and tidbits from from everyone that comes on because there's some uh, incredible guests on here and uh, that have written some amazing stuff so it's kind of yeah. neat to pick their brains yeah it's a it's a trick to uh, guess to, to for them to teach us. <laughs> yeah. Well it done, is. well done, sirs. It's it's not even a a well hidden trick, and you know, <laughs> the 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 thing I'll I'll say is, and it's and it's selfish, but I've I've called it selfish before on here. Um, is you really can you know if you have an author on that is particularly good at something you admire, and you you can pick your brain on on or you can pick their brain on it. But even if you have, you know, just something that's kind of niggling at you over the week, you, maybe something's not working in your story, you know, you can... So, Shelly, what do you think about... Um, and, you know, you can get advice that way. But, you know, I, 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 I say it's selfish, and it is, but I feel like there's a benefit to that because a lot of the people that we get feedback from are writers who are new or newer or still looking to kind of just find their voice, hone their craft a little bit more. And, you know, approaching it from each and every angle is, you know, you're constantly learning, you know? Totally. And it's so important because writing such a lonely profession, just like you in front of a computer or a notebook, to have that like outside feedback. And it's hard to find uh, beta mm -hmm. readers that can be honest because sometimes your friends aren't, right? Like sometimes, yeah, they're, it's great because they don't want to say it isn't great. So I've been really lucky to find a great critique group of like four or five writers that we became friends after we became critique partners uh, but we're not scared to tell each other like yeah that's garbage that that's just shit <laughs> throw that out and we don't get hurt feelings over it um, but it's really hard as a new writer to find that to find where you can go to ask questions to find who will look at stuff for you because there's so many fantastic writers out there and there's so many new writers out there and we all need to find our little homes <laughs> It took me six years to find Brennan and a few others that I trust. And uh, Brennan and I have gotten to the point where 
we know each other's writing so well where he and I will just say like, you can do better than this. <laughs> but that, you know what? I was going to bring up the same thing if you didn't. And I think that's so vital is to find somebody who can look at your work and, you know, when, when I get something back and it has a little track change uh, from Patrick or, you know, a couple other people and it says, hey, man, you're better than this. Yeah. I can look at that and I don't, I don't have to think like, oh, well, but I like that. I, I can look at that and say, yeah, man, you are better than this. It's so important to have someone that won't take your shit writing and be like, come on, <laughs> don't try and pull that over on us. We he's know all, you can do better. <laughs> he's also given me great feedback with my middle name saying the R stands for rub-a-dub-dub-dub. <laughs> well, you got you got to work the humor in too. Otherwise, you know, you're writing horror. It's bleak. It's, you know, dreary. It's, there, there's nary a happy ending in sight. So, you know, if we can't laugh at uh, at our mistakes, then... What are we even doing? Exactly. Living a good life. So I do want to get back to golf. Um, now, you described, was there, I can't remember if it was in the beginning, if there was an introduction or, man, I should have known this, or uh, afterward by you, but um, you talked about how you and your family used to go to a cabin, only you had very good upbringing. Um, I want to hear about that. Was it in Canada or... Yeah, um, I'm from Alberta, so we're kind of tucked into the Rocky Mountains a bit, um, but still out on the prairies. I grew up um, farming, very small scale farming. We're mostly like hobby farming, but you still couldn't go away on holidays because people, are, you're not going to be like, it's different saying look after my dog and then saying, hey, can you look after like 30 cows too and a bunch <sighs> of chickens, right? No one's going to do that. So when you grew up farming, you didn't go, we didn't go on a lot of holidays. Like you couldn't afford to either. Farming wasn't really lucrative. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but every summer, um, usually on Labor Day long weekends, so towards September, um, my family would go up to a cabin that became a full-time home uh, of a good family friend. So my dad, when he was growing up, uh, they were across the street from some neighbors that they became very good friends with as kids. And when those families moved apart, they always kept in touch. And once they moved apart from each other, they met once a year at this cabin. And they kept on doing that until my dad grew up and then beyond. And so for just about every year since I was born, we'd go have this family reunion with people that weren't actually family, just good family friends up at their cabin. Um, so big families. My dad has uh, seven siblings or six siblings on his side, uh, and they had four kids on that side. So tons of kids. Um, and we've been going there every year since we could remember so it was almost like they were your cousins even though a lot of them weren't family and you look forward to going there because it was the same place every year um so a lot of like the comfort feelings in golf were like this is somewhere they've done this is tradition um and going out for supper and going golfing and all those like cozy cabin feelings stem from there um and yeah i have a uh, um a very big extended family and uh, and a really close loving immediate family so all of the bad things that happened to david didn't happen to me i, I lucked out um but i always thought it was cool because my dad came from a really big family and so did my mom uh, and they both had stories of like if there were seven kids total how often did one of them get lost like how would you keep track of them all <laughs> so so i thought uh, it'd be an interesting start from there and david same thing kind of in a big family and the kid that it just always gets forgotten <laughs> oh my god yeah i got lost in the year okay so people mass not mass people not from massachusetts i can't talk 
<laughs> probably won't know where Brockton is, but it's a big ass city. And even when I lived there uh, in the early '90s, it. Sorry, Brocktonians, but it's not a place you want to raise a kid. Um, that's why we moved away. But I bring that up because I got lost in the Brockton Mall. <laughs> Brendan, you've been there, right? I don't think I have, no. Really? I, I stay the hell away from Brockton. Yeah. Okay. So I was like two or three and I got lost. And I know my parents are freaking out. But, like, you got, you got what, six more kids to look after? Yeah. When there weren't cell phones or nothing? Good no, God. right? Like, who knows how long you could lose them for? <laughs> I think that's part of what I was trying to pull on with David is like, we've all had like that formative moment where you're like, uh oh, I can't see my parents anywhere. And like, what would it feel like if that kept on happening? Uh, and you just realize there's something wrong here. Like, um, it's just me all the time. And it's not just his parents forgetting him, it's everyone. And hopefully, golf is kind of like a love note too to people that feel like they're invisible to say you don't have to be this super visible person that everyone sees that's loud to change the world. Sometimes the quiet people can save the world too. <laughs> the more we talk, the more I think that there's definitely influences of Alfred Hitchcock in this book. <laughs> I, can't yeah, pin- again- I can't pinpoint an exact probably subliminal because like i said it was one of the shows we watched growing up as kids but i can't even remember specific episodes but yeah we grew up on a steady diet of hitchcock and outer limits and x-files and and hockey which wasn't so horrific unless there was a fight but (laughs) it's the only sport where you can uh beat the shit out of each other until one guy falls on the ice it's very freeing So, Shelly, I wonder if you have a uh, an example of a formative experience of being left behind or lost somewhere. My best one I remember, and it wasn't my parents, although I'm sure they forgot me somewhere. They told me they have at one point. <laughs> Maybe on purpose, I hope not. <laughs> I remember going on a school trip uh, to the Calgary Zoo. So we grew up in a small town, and Calgary was a city. It's not huge. I think now it's about a million people, but uh, Calgary was a city about an hour away. And like once a year, you got to go on a field trip to the Calgary Zoo, which is quite an amazing zoo. It's a really nice place to visit. And so we went in like grade two or three with a school. And this is back when like... Like you all held on to the rope so that you were all physically attached at some point to your teacher. And at one point I looked at the rope I was holding and I looked at the kid in front of me and I'm like, this isn't my class at all. Somehow I switched over to the wrong line, like some runaway train. And I asked the teacher at the head of this line, because I figured this is the only adult in sight, um, where should I go? And they were so angry <laughs> that I got lost and that they had to find who owned me now and I remember them being so mad about it and me being like I was just holding on to the rope <laughs> so that's the one that comes to mind for me <laughs> god adults are so stupid how how dare you you know as a as a small child get <laughs> get lost <laughs> And as a parent, I've had that when you're at the park and you kind of look like someone's mom and a kid runs up to you to hold (laughs) your hand and then they slow motion look up to you and realize it's not their parent. (laughs) So on the other side of it, I've had that experience where you're like, oh, hey, buddy, (laughs) like I'm not your mom. (laughs) I've had a little kid call me dad before. I'm like, you're not, Philip. (laughs) You're not my son. (laughs) I think we need more Canadians on the show. Canadians, I've never, look, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement, but this is kind of a compliment. I've, I used to game with 
uh, all sorts of people when I was, you know, 10 to high school playing this game called Counter-Strike. And there was a few Canadians that I've never met one that, you know, is mean. <laughs> Y'all <laughs> are friendly. We, it's because we distill all our evil into Canada geese and then we send them south. Oh, <laughs> I knew it. That's the secret. <laughs> Those motherfuckers <laughs> shit all over the parks and everywhere, man. Um, Have you ever had an encounter with a, can- a Canadian goose? They're awful. Yes. I think that's part of it. You can't have a Canadian citizenship without that. It's like if you immigrate, they just have to sick a goose on you at some point for you to be a complete Canadian. My kids call them cobra chickens. <laughs> I like that. I like that merit of citizenship test. You know, in, in, yeah. in the United States, you have to like know the history or something. In Canada, you have to fight a goose. Yeah. <laughs> it's better than fighting a moose. True. True that. Not by much, though. <laughs> I don't know. Laird Bear told us about mooses and fuck that, dude. <laughs> I'll fight 10 geese over a moose. They're massive. We have them here in yeah, Alberta. They're huge. Yeah, and I forget how big they are until one of them crosses the road in front of you in the highway and you're usually looking up at them unless you're in a big truck and you realize, oh man, these are so much taller than I remember. I hope I don't hit this. <laughs> yeah, I remember going on vacations to like New Hampshire and Maine when, yeah, I, was, yeah. when I was little and just you know, now, never thinking of it from the back seat until I got older that, man, I'm really glad our brakes worked. Because if yeah. they did, that that moose is going to be absolutely fine, but I'm not. <laughs> They're like giraffes with no necks. They're just all legs. <laughs> Do you think it's the universal health care that makes Canadians so much nicer? Because, like, you can get hurt and you're like, eh, fuck it. To be honest... Uh, and, and I don't like to get political, but I think that's a huge part of it. I, um, when I delivered my first son, ended up having a major hemorrhage and having to be flown in an air ambulance to a hospital oh, and having surgery. Uh, and there was absolutely no bill for that. And I can't imagine how stressful that situation would have been if while you're getting wheeled into surgery, you were thinking, oh my God, how much is this going to cost? Um, yeah, it's absolutely amazing. The air ambulance here is um, not included as part of provincial health care. It's, it's fundraised, and, but still, it's, it's a non-for-profit. And, and since everything's kind of isolated out here, and if you're not by a major city, if you get into a wreck on the highway or something, sometimes uh, it's quite far for just a ground-based ambulance to drive. Uh, but yeah, that's non-for-profit. And yeah, you don't have to worry about bills for major stuff like that. that I think that's huge uh, yeah. amount on on the daily anxiety levels in life for sure for sure like i wasn't Absolutely. trying i wasn't being silly when i said that i mean i think oh that no does, worries it's i don't think it's a political thing like it should be a human basic right for every person every animal too but that's a another topic my brother got in this freak accident when he used to work at this tree cutting company two years ago he almost died he got flown out to air flown to uh boston medical and um that shit ain't cheap. No, to say the crazy. least. Yeah. And I'm um, not like trying to joke either, but someone was saying, uh, like, can you imagine if the show Breaking Bad had been set in Canada? Like it would just <laughs> be an end of the story so fast because there was no storyline there if he had oh, wow. universal health care. Like Walter Jeez. White would have been a completely different guy. <laughs> We're Shall laughing, we... but that's depressing. <laughs> it is, but sometimes you have to laugh, you know? Yeah. Shelly just fucking destroyed my one of my favorite shows. <laughs> yeah, what else? You know what? What other shows would that ruin? Probably a whole lot. I mean, you guys Movies, had shows, yeah. You guys had legalized marijuana a lot longer than we have. Yeah, it's true. 
Uh, yeah, Virtus had it for a while now. Well, yeah. Smells like skunks a lot around the neighborhood. <laughs> that's that's uh, when I go back home to Massachusetts, it smells like that all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, what do you want to talk about now? I'm throwing it to you, sir. Uh, I was actually, you know, I liked how you went into the whole idea of, you know, big families when you were, you know, thinking your way around golf. I'm curious about Jess and George. Did you have any influences to make the two most obnoxious characters that I've read this year? (laughs) (laughs) There's always got to be a pair, you know what I mean? And usually they're not by themselves when they're jerks. Usually it's a pair. But you can get a certain pair of people together and they're the biggest jerks ever if they're together. So I thought, well, why not make them twins so they're always together? Um, so, yeah, and I thought um, in big families, there's probably always that one sibling who you're like, oh, man, I can't stand that person. You just don't jive with them. And I thought, why not make it double in golf? Why not make it two? <laughs> I love the comparison uh, with Tweedledee and Tweedledummer. <laughs> That's great. I love Alice in Wonderland. So anytime there's a reference to that, I'm all for it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to jump to Canadian, the Canadian writing scene. I don't know much about it. Is there? There is one. I know there is, but I almost said, "Is there one?" Obviously, there is. <laughs> but, but what's it? What is it like up there compared to the U.S. or anywhere else? I guess it's a lot smaller and more spread out. Um, so. For example, when I was querying for a fantasy, and again, I'm unagented, so I'm just querying small publishers that accept unagented submissions. But for up here in Canada, there was maybe like two or three small publishers I could sub to. That was it. Um, So it's small and kind of spread out. Uh, A little bit more active probably on the eastern coast, like Toronto and that sort of area, because it's just so much more populated. Um, But I find really supportive. So smaller groups, but way more supportive because you know that, hey, we're all spread out out here. Uh, So a lot more like online get togethers. And when there was like in-person cons, huge turnouts for them, because like this is the only chance we're going to get to be able to talk to people that write in our genre, genre, because you're all so spread out. Mm. Um, amazing grants, uh, government grants. Um, I haven't been applied for any myself, but uh, depending on what you're doing in the arts, um, there's some incredible government support if you're willing to go through the paperwork for it, uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, stuff like getting um, your ISBN numbers, it doesn't cost anything up here, things like that. So it's pretty cool to see them support the arts like that. Uh, we had Wagisha Wag, I can't talk tonight. We had Wabgisha Grison. He's from the Anishinaabe uh, tribe. I hope I'm not fucking that up. And his location, Sudbury area. Yeah, um, Wab. He's really cool. I know him not so much as a writer, but he used to be a journalist, a reporter up here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. awesome. He's fantastic. Um, but he talked about that. The grants he got it. Two or three times. I can't remember on the top of my head, but there you go. That's another thing that they support art. Art's so important, but it's at least from my perspective, people outside of being creators don't take art seriously. For example, I always wanted to be a writer, but I thought it was a screenwriter, well, filmmaker. I thought I wanted to do the Kevin Smith thing direct, edit, and write. I uh, would love that one day, but. I had very few people supporting me. My, my immediate family did, but 
whenever you get like people together to shoot a you know video or whatever movie they don't think of it as anything like beyond an amateur hour which i get it but it's very few and far between for actual support um and there's a lot of hollow excitement like yeah it's awesome but few people show up until you meet like you talked about earlier people that have the same mindset uh i find that with writing too um Oh, you like writing as a hobby? Well, what do you want to do for, you know, the rest of your life? Like, I want to write. Yeah, exactly. That's what I want. <laughs> People get paid and make a living off of that. That's what I want to do. And I think COVID kind of highlighted that a bit for us when everyone was in forced isolation what was the most important thing to people i mean other than obviously like essential services like being able to have food and things like that but that's when everyone was like oh man i gotta pick up a book or i'm gonna catch up on all those shows i didn't watch on netflix we totally turned entertainment and the arts for comfort um yet everyone doesn't think they're important until you're like hmm, i kind of need those right now <laughs> absolutely brennan what, what you got on this man you know, we've talked about this before, but I, I I love making this shout out to like the horror community. And I bet a lot of other bookish communities did it as well. But I remember about a year ago when uh, we were all asked to lock down. So many authors uh, made their and, and publishers made their books free or uh, like a, a dollar. So to encourage people to just stay home. Um, and I thought that was such a cool, grand gesture um to support and and you know even if you're charging a, a buck if you have a bunch of people downloading that you're going to see that impact you're going to get into new names you're going to try an author that you haven't tried before um and, and a lot of people's you know, I, love for reading probably coming back for some of that right like some people yeah, absolutely get priced right out of reading or just don't have the time and and this year was a different year in a lot of ways um that forced people to slow down and and those of us that wanted to escape had to do it in a book. <laughs> yeah, we all know that person who said, who you know, is is too busy to ever read a book. It's like, well, you know, you're at home now, Susan. You can, you got time. Pick up a book. My husband's not a reader. He doesn't read any fiction. He's not a fan. Does a lot of technical reading for work and just nope. I would. I don't want to read. Uh, hasn't read much of my stuff, but doesn't bother me because he's not like a genre of fantasy or even a fiction reader. Just. Not his cup of tea. <laughs> my, my, his own. my wife isn't a, she doesn't read most of my stuff either, but she doesn't read much fiction ever. So, yeah. I mean, I've it's my husband maybe pick up a book for recreational purposes, maybe once or twice in our marriage. <laughs> <And there> was, <laughs> it's just not his go to, right? When uh, the guys at work, these older guys I work with, I work in an industrial uh, business. I work for a wastewater treatment plant, and um, they're two older guys. They are very good at their jobs, but they're they're not into fiction. They're like, why don't you read this at home, nonfiction stuff? And it's like, Jesus Christ, man, you want me to fall asleep? Like, I'll do the, I'll go to my bedroom if I want to read this stuff and fall asleep. Um, That's interesting. I come from a similar background. I used to be a plant operator at a sour gas plant, so very industrial. Yeah. No That's kidding. probably, again, where some of the horror came from, because anyone that works oh, yeah. a lot of shift work will be able to tell you, if you're on night shifts, you get into that perfect frame of mind where you start coming up with all the weird ideas. <laughs> I don't think Brennan will ever have another friend or my wife or the other few that I send pictures like this to, but at times when I'm working on like a 60-foot uh, conveyor belt, literally with sh 
clumps of shit on it. I'm like, that's all poop. And uh, there was this one job I had to replace a uh, probe in a tank full of shit. And when you open the cover, it's very visible uh, gases rising from the tank full of liquefied shit. And I'm like, do you realize how hard it's not to puke right now? This smell is so bad. You need a mask or you are going to pass out. I actually teach a course. That's my side job, apart from oh, writing, is no I kidding. teach a course called H2S Alive, <laughs> training anyone that's in oil field or wastewater yeah. treatment about why this gas is dangerous and how to recognize it. So, yeah, I totally hear you. <laughs> yeah, I'm the guy that takes care of the, ga- the gas detectors at my work for H2S is a killer. That yeah. shit eats up bricks. It eats through the metal doors, the hardware, the locking mechanisms. It's It can't... It smells like sour, egg, uh, uh, like eggs, Brian. Yeah. It's disgusting. Not, not good stuff. It's <laughs> so gross. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, I mean, you successfully talked me out of your job, besides the fact that I don't <laughs> know anything about... <laughs> well, I, I don't know anything about electronics, so I would break everything. The gas would be unleashed on Atlantic City, thousands <laughs> dead, um, and it's all on me, so... That should be my next story, H2S Alive release. I'd have lots of uh, lots of background experience. I mean, you could write some pretty interesting um, short stories. Like we talked, you brought up Stephen King earlier. I forget the title. <sighs> Which one was in? I think it was in Night Shift. Yeah, that that I think it was in Night Shift where he talks about uh, this character wants to work like overtime um, to get some extra hours to clean up, and they find this subterranean level with all these. It's darkness and nice. all these rats. Do you guys remember that? Do either one of you remember that story? I, th- I think that actually is called Night Shift. Yeah. Oh, is it like that? Yeah, I think it's like the titular story. Well, it, he based it off of an old job that he had, and uh, you know, obviously you're a writer, so you got to embellish a lot of the truths. But yeah, you, you could probably write some pretty good stories off of your experience. <laughs> I've had guys when because everyone at work for the first like two years, no one knew I was a writer. Um, surprisingly, like, I don't like talking about that in public now because I'll often hear, oh, yeah, I almost wrote a book once or like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or I, you know, if I had time, it's like, dude, shut the fuck up. You were just home for a year, man. <laughs> yeah. I saw a meme on that recently where someone was like, I'm a brain surgeon. It was like, oh, I've been meaning to pick that up in my spare time. <laughs> like... <laughs> I was out with, um, my my wife and my son, we were at this really nice, it's like this village with historic homes, but it's all shops. And this one guy was talking about how um, he was writing something. And my mother-in-law, she's very supportive. But I said, I was like, audio listeners, I'm shaking my head wide eyes. I'm like, no. And then I waited till we were outside. I'm like, I don't know what this guy's going to say. And I don't want to talk about writing with everybody. And I'll say one more quick story. I was waiting in a doctor's office on my laptop writing and this this bitch right next to me just like not even nonchalantly just looks at what I'm working on like I want to kill you. I don't like very few people can look at my first drafts. Never mind literally over my shoulder as I'm typing like I feel very naked right now. Leave me alone. 
I well, knew we gotta... made that about writing being a different world. Um, I actually, this past weekend, I was at Dairy Queen, which again, tie into golf. Good old Dairy Queen. <laughs> <laughs> I was at Dairy Queen. We picked up the kids some ice cream because we had some nice weather. And I ran into my old boss that I uh, worked for when I worked at the Sour Gas plant. So like totally different world than my writing world. And he was like, what are you up to now? Uh, I heard you've been writing some books. I'm like, he's like, I'm like, yeah. And he's like, what kind of books? Like, what are you into? And I'm like, oh, there's this like grim dark fantasy and then uh the, the one that's just coming out now it's horror and his actual response was oh no <laughs> which <laughs> i thought was amazing so yeah sometimes you don't get the reaction you hope for <laughs> i don't know if you thought it was like horror about him or or what but <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's hilarious i'll say brendan was gonna say something but just super quick um the only time I've gotten picked to do jury work four or five times. I've gotten actually picked to be a juror once. And when they said, like, what are your hobbies when they were picking out jurors? And my head was like, oh, this is going to be sweet. They're going to hear I read hard and they're going to be like, no. But I said that and I was like, oh, I like to read. You know, I read horror and true crime. And then I sat down and I got picked. I'm like, oh, that was supposed to have the opposite effect. <laughs> You mentioned true crime. That was your problem. They're like, oh, this person knows the system. So, <laughs> See, now, I was going to throw out earlier that if, if, if you're in a waiting room or whatever and somebody's reading over your shoulder, you got to kill them on the page at that moment. Oh, I should have. <laughs> and this bitch looked over my shoulder and I murdered her. <laughs> Brandy, it's like it was those that... horror stories that agents are saying recently where they're getting query letters about a writer that's gone crazy and tried to kill an agent because their work has never been accepted. <laughs> like, ooh, that would be a terrible query letter to get ooh. as an agent. <laughs> Bad form. <laughs> you know, this may be touchy, but it's along the subjects that we're talking about. Like, there's been some horror writers that have been exposed for actually being pretty shitty people. And... It, it just sucks as being a fellow horror author because you're like, other people can say, see, that's what the the type of mind that writes horror. I've seen those comments from other writers, uh, specifically about extreme writers being super judgy. They're like, see, that's the type of person that writes that. It's like, nah, that's just see, one. I'm new to the horror world, but I found them to be like the sweetest, most amazing bunch of people. Most They've are. got this amazing outlet uh, to, to get rid of all those horror thoughts, and they, they tend to be some of the nicest people you ever meet. The people I've met, anyways. I don't want to scare you away. Most of them are. But when you're dealing... <laughs> look, if you're dealing just, with a group... Just oh. DM me who the bad ones are. <laughs> <laughs> if you're dealing with a group of, like, five people, you'll probably get along with all of them. But, like, there's hundreds of people in the... I don't know, maybe thousands. You're going to get a few people you don't like. I mean, sure. it's human nature. Unless yeah. they're all Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some bad ones of us out here. You oh, can just, definitely. You can, we can have hockey fights. We can sort it out that way. <laughs> I'm trying to think who. I mean... Wayne Gretzky, but he's amazing, so never mind. <laughs> any bad Canadians are clearly just Canadian geese in disguise. Yeah, any of the bad ones got thrown to the goose pits long ago. <laughs> I thought they were... Uh, the were goose they? pits? Do you have goose pits? <laughs> totally came up with that on the fly. <laughs> I'm sure we have our fair share of jerks and idiots up here, too, but we're so much smaller and more spread out. So, like, per capita, it seems like less... <laughs> It's less dense, there but it's go. the same amount. <laughs> I just looked up online. It says uh, top ten evil Canadians. 
excellent. I'd love to hear who they are. <laughs> I, I hope just, I'm not I, on there. <laughs> I'm gonna go straight to the first person. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting a bunch of ads. That's fantastic. This is great. <laughs> this is it's an advertiser, a Canadian advertiser. It only goes to the top third person, who's Conrad Black. I don't know who that is. So this is a dumb article. <laughs> it's a bunch of people I don't know. Like all the, the Canadians I know is like Seth Rogen and Wayne Gretzky or you, Tim McGregor. It's a small sample size, but you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I, li I like it. So get a Steve Stred in there. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, he's wonderful. He's delightful. <laughs> no, he's a, yeah, he's a really nice guy. Um, I'd like to dive back into critique groups. How'd you get involved with those? I found my critique group through originally through like a Facebook beta group where it was just like this widespread group. And you're like, hey, does anyone really read my stuff? And people would like sign up for it. Uh, and some of them were like, again, you're like, Ooh, <laughs> this was a mistake with some people. Uh, so you had to weed through a lot of people. You're like, Ugh, yeah, that wasn't good feedback or stuff like that. But eventually uh, one of the people uh, that critiqued my work, uh, we really connected. Uh, and actually their debut book that they've just got published uh, and my debut book under the lesser moon that was the first thing we ever critiqued for each other so that was kind of cool uh, and she's like hey I've got like this private group of like five or six or seven other writers uh, that we've all kind of found each other do you want to join this private group I'm like yes <laughs> so I kind of got lucked out uh, and backdoored into this private group of all the cream of the crop <laughs> that they'd found uh, really worked well as critique partners for each other and yeah I've been part of that group group for uh, three, four years now, probably. And they're an amazing, amazing bunch of folks. Uh, really lucky to, again, like pretty much everywhere I go in the publishing world, I'm like, I'm just lucky to be along for the ride with you people, all like super high caliber people. And you're like, I snuck in here somehow and no one knows it's me. That's right. That's imposter syndrome. Yeah. Exactly. All of us got it. Yeah. You know, like I'm sure even guys like Ray Bradbury or you know, uh, Shirley Jackson or whoever. Like, it, you know, it'd be interesting. I wish this would never happen, but I wish we could have guests on like Bram Stoker and just or, or Mary Shelley and be like, hey, do you know what kind of impact you had? I'm sure no one would be like, yeah, I knew that. Or, you know, William Shakespeare. No, yeah. Like, I see so, some problems with getting them on. Yeah. <laughs> we could get a We're not names. doing a seance over Zoom, dude. <laughs> No, we're on Skype. We totally, totally watch that. <laughs> Fucking Jed, Jed Shepard ruined that for everyone for life. The sequel is coming out too, man. He's working on that for host. Shelly, I'm curious though, with your critique group, do you find, you know, I, we, we're talking about imposter syndrome, so this is a weird question, but do you find that it helps with your confidence when you're, you know, querying, when you're, putting together a finished product like that you had these eyes that you trust and that what you're sending out is the best it can possibly be I do again I think that depends on the critique group I think if you get too many people looking at your work they're all gonna have different opinions and you're just gonna be like okay well one person said this and the other person said the absolute opposite so I think you gotta be <laughs> careful uh, who you trust and like how many people you want to read your work before you do it because otherwise you'll just get more muddled uh, the more opinions that there are uh, but I find with the group I have um, if if like 
one or two or more of them say, hey, this has got to change, I can trust them. I know it's got to change because two of them separately in separate documents said, hey, I noticed this and it's got to change. And yeah, it definitely gives me the confidence. In fact, uh, one of the things Ken said uh, when he was reading through golf is like, this seemed kind of polished, like it'd been through other set of eyes before. And I'm like, oh, it has. <laughs> it's, been through, it's been through about five sets of eyes uh, before it ever went out to see the world. So yeah, I find it helps a lot uh, for me anyways, because... I don't feel confident sending it out if it's only me who's seen it, especially if I haven't had a chance to give it a break. So you, you, you have beta readers. I have them. Brennan has them. We've talked about this, but um, so I know what your opinion is on that. Between Brennan and I, we've talked about something that I'd like your opinion on. Um, we've talked about editors, and I'm not here to knock anyone down, but I don't understand... And it's usually newer writers. I don't understand writers that don't use editors. Um, what's your thoughts on editors? I think that part of it might be sticker shock for some newer writers. They're like, whoa, it costs how much? Uh, <laughs> without realizing like how much work it is to edit, to develop, whether you're, you know, and how, and how many steps of editing they are and not understanding uh, what steps they need and things like that. Um, so I think a lot of that's that, like, why would I pay for that? Um, and a lot of that is for like a do-it-yourself community now, worldwide, you know what I mean? Like Home Depot was like, you can do this yourself, build your back deck. <laughs> so like in writing, we're like, yeah, I'm going to do this all by myself too. And it's so easy to fall in love with your own work that you think everyone else is going to be just as excited about it and that it's perfect um, without realizing how close to it you are and that what's going on in your mind isn't necessarily what's coming out on the page. Uh, so I think if someone can afford uh, if to get an editor, fantastic. If not, find yourself, it's going to take a few years, but find yourself a good group of critique partners that aren't initially your friends that are going to tell you for free whether it's good or not. <laughs> uh, and, and you're going to have to do, you're going to have to get a not a thick skin. Uh, don't put up with people who are just going to be utter jerks to you, obviously. But know that the books you see on the shelf in the bookstore isn't a single person that made that. That's a collaborative project that many, many, many people worked on to get it that shiny. right? And if you want your stuff to be that shiny, you're going to have to be willing to make it a collaborative project too. So that's kind of my opinion on it. <laughs> that's a great one. I mean... For a 700-word flash piece that's not even published, I'd, I'd like eight people look at it. You know, like you gotta put in the work. When I started seriously writing in 2014, I um, I, I had no idea what the fuck I was doing. I still, I'm not claiming I do now, but I paid for an editor one time because it's the only time I self-published. It was like three or four hundred bucks for a 20,000-word novella. Um, I could see how that's discouraging. That's a good point to bring that up. And it's, you don't know what you're going to get, right? Like you can send a page or two and, and get an editor to sample, uh, edit it. Um, but you're not sure what you're going to get uh, from an editor. You're not sure if you're going to be a good fit. And probably some of it with new authors is like, you know, on TV. That's not how it happens. You're scared to share your work with the world. You're just hoping you could ship it off in a nice letter to a publisher. And then you're going to come rich and famous after that because it's amazing. <laughs> and a lot of people coming into it don't realize like how much work goes into this stuff behind the scenes. 
Yeah, I'm sure. And you know what? Another thing is, at least for me, I was worried about like, what's my mom gonna think? I don't give a shit anymore. My mom's surprisingly <laughs> yeah. supportive. My parents know I'm super warped. <laughs> I think I'll do that in like the acknowledgments of my book. My dad actually sent me a message after he read. Um, he hasn't read golf yet, but after he read Under the Lesser Moon, he was like, I loved it. Aww. I read it one day and I'm like, oh, dad, thanks. And I'm like, I was worried you were going to think it's super warped. He's like, oh, you're super warped. All right. But I loved it. <laughs> so like, I'm lucky enough to have a set of parents equally as warped as I am. And like yeah. you, not, not worried at all about what they think. <laughs> oh, they can't judge you. They took you to the creepy tree and screamed at you. Exactly. <laughs> they molded me into who I am. <laughs> now, Brennan, unless you got anything else, I would like to jump to upcoming projects, which is a weird question to ask. But hey, you might have something. I do. You. Oh, okay. Then not a weird yeah. question at all. I'm right now subbing uh, to a few publishers, uh, work that I've actually co-written with a friend of mine. Um, and she's not a writer, uh, but she had this idea that she wanted to get down on paper. Uh, and she's also got ADHD and she wanted the main character have ADHD. So I thought that would be so cool to write with you, but I would obviously need a lot of input from you as to how this character's mind works and what she would do in certain situations because um, I have no experience with that. So we co-wrote it together. It's called End Date. Uh, it's about uh, post-apocalyptic British Columbia. So it's kind of set in Western mm. Canada. The world has kind of been bombarded by solar flares constantly. It's wiped out the electrical grids. And Iris, the main character, is part of a commune uh, that is kind of scavenging pieces of the internet off of old hard drives, scribing it back to paper and selling the knowledge because all of the books by that time were digital. And when the electrical grids went down, so much knowledge was lost that you could make a pretty good buck selling this knowledge. Uh, but they're running out of knowledge to sell. It's been a little while here in the apocalypse and, and they don't have a lot of valuable information anymore. So that's wow. what I'm kind of subbing out now. <laughs> I love it. I think that sounds fantastic. Um, you know, it's interesting. I learned this uh, just the other day from Brennan about ADHD. I got diagnosed with ADD. He's like, dude, that's not a thing anymore. I'm like, okay. And he well, just... that, to jump in, it's perfectly legit that if you got diagnosed with that, you know, 20 years ago, you know, it was, it's just, you know, one of, and I don't think it was the DSM five, but one of the, uh, I don't know diagnostics, uh, the diagn, uh, I'd have to look it up. I, f I can't remember the acronym, but basically, you know, the big doctor book of medical conditions, uh, the most updated version, you know, it, uh, ADD is an, is kind of under the umbrella of ADHD. Um, you know, they, they did away with, uh, diagnoses like Asperger's and um, PDD NOS in favor of just putting everything under the umbrella of the autism spectrum. Uh, and I'm rambling now. Go ahead. Please continue your story. Um, <laughs> yeah, he told me that and I talked to my wife. She's a social worker, but she's smart as fuck, especially she teaches me so many things about uh, mental disorders and neurodiversity and so forth. You know, what's weird is like we've talked to so many people for I don't know, over a year. And I haven't, I haven't really talked about like m m being neurodiverse myself. Cause I never thought of that. I feel like I'm always slow to stuff like that, but 
You know what? Uh, that's that that conversation is going to be saved for probably another episode. I, that was just my only input with that. So, I mean, that's another level of my interest there too. Just to throw it out there. Um, can we talk about what are you currently reading right now? Ooh, um, what have I been? Re- I just finished Laurel Hightower's The Crossroads a little while ago. Which Ooh, is, tell me what you think. It was a terrible book to read if you're a parent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We actually have someone in our neighborhood. Have you guys read um, The Crossroads at all? We actually oh, yes. have a lady in our neighborhood whose son um, was killed a number of years ago by a drunk driver and has a oh, cross no. on the side of the road oh, and God. sits there regularly. And I, my heart was broken when I started reading Laurel's book. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, it was uh, so similar to a, a situation we had up here, which hopefully doesn't end the same. This lady's doing well. Uh, but yeah, that one was a heartbreaker. Uh, Stephen Graham Jones, the only good Indians read that one a while ago. And again, that was like a gut punch in the most amazing way, I suppose. Um, other than that, right now, I actually just started into, um, uh, Kenneth Keynes, uh, from Death Reborn. Nice. Right? right? Yeah. So just got into that. So I'm uh, trying to well, read more in horror. Cause like I said, I'm a little bit new to the horror world. So if you look at the dedication in the front of that book, you'll see two very familiar names. <laughs> oh, oh, we're, oh, where are we are. Right? Yep. Excellent. Oh, I mean- I haven't read that. I haven't read. I haven't read the final version yet. Yeah, me and Brennan Bader read that. Um, that's cool. I didn't know that. Wow, that's news to me. Uh, so about Laurel Hightower's Crossroads. Yeah, we Brennan and I read that before we had Laurel on to promote that book. And what what a what a story to start a press with. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, she's got another book out. Came out in twenty eighteen. Uh, through Journal Stone called Whispers in the Dark. And I read that a few months after I had my son. And that was the first book in my adult life that I remember where I just started crying. Uh-huh. Um, it's a powerful book. I um, <laughs> There's a few months where I was crying over anything, but like that book's super powerful. <laughs> yeah. And life changes when you're a parent, right? Like things that your priorities change and things didn't seem important before. Uh, are like think your your view changes a bit i think i remember like i told you i was working uh, as a sour gas plant operator we were working yeah. at like really old facilities uh and i remember the allure of that i kind of lost <laughs> lost its allure after i had kids i'm like i don't know if i want to have a career working in a really old sour gas facility that's got poisonous gas in it <laughs> so yeah. yeah it was that's gonna like, be a utility thing you know, because I hear, like, mine's old. It's, there's a lot of updates. Needed. They just keep running them until they don't run anymore. <laughs> it's pretty scary because the machines, I'm sure, like, your your old uh, plant are very big and could kill you very quickly and painfully. And they're old. So when we'd have to replace parts on something, you'd be like, I don't even know where you'd order this part for anymore. And you'd look it up and like the business that made that part has gone out of business since the 80s. And you're like, so it was really interesting to even try and maintain some of these old places. I'm going on my... Not so exciting to work at them. Once I had kids, I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) This is the career I'm staying in. (laughs) I just looked at the date, forgot it's the 22nd, and actually two or three days, I forget, 24th or 25th of April, will be my, I'm going to my fifth year where I'm at, and um, 
I mean, there's stories I've heard from some of the older guys, and one was a guy was on a ladder above a little, like, port into a three-story furnace, and uh, fire shot out from the furnace. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Uh, And, oh, going back to, you know, all the stories that you or I could tell or people in that situation could tell of it in the horror lens or whatever, um, one guy asked me, like, he's like, I, I... I get it from a few people now, like, hey, you should write a story about this. And I, I tell them now, I'm like, I have one. It's a uh, horror crime story, and it's pretty dark. Uh, and I don't <laughs> awesome. think it's far-fetched for, you know, a dead person to show up in the Atlantic City Ocean, you know? Nope. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> so, uh, Brennan, what are you reading right now? I am... Uh, Don't you do it, you son of a bitch. I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> I am reading Razorblade ah. Tears uh, from S.A. Cosby. Uh, for those of you who don't know, his his new book that comes out in July, the guy who wrote uh, Blacktop Wasteland. And this thing is absolutely phenomenal. I'll tell you, I started it last night. I'm already 200 pages through it. Um, I can't I can't put it down. I loved Blacktop Wasteland, and I so far I like this one even better. Um so the main premise is that these this gay married couple is, you know, brutally murdered off screen before the book even starts. And they're the fathers of each man uh, are ex-cons who come together to uh, kind of find the, the killers because the police have kind of given up on the case. Um, and just you know the characterization is just above and beyond top notch it's heart wrenching it's hilarious like it's just it's got everything i love this book oh that's cool i love when people can nail characters i mean you got to be able to feel for the people before anything's scary <laughs> if you can't Absolutely. connect with them then you don't really care what happens <laughs> yes yeah. no, he has so a way fun. i mean anybody who read blacktop wasteland knows he has a way with character and i feel like he's even topped himself with this one Oh, awesome. Pat, how about you? What what not as good book are you reading? <laughs> Whoa. Did he steal yours? <laughs> no, I, I said don't you do it, you son of a bitch, because he before we, we recorded, he was talking about it and uh I haven't gotten my arc yet and I Sean Huh? Oh, I thought you said something. I haven't got my advanced copy yet and I'm that's why I said don't do it, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I just want that book in my brain so badly. But I am reading, uh, so for people who have listened to the last few episodes, yeah, I'm still reading t- two Cena Palio books. Um, I finished Golf a couple days ago. That was awesome. And now I'm reading uh, the audio version of Ronald Kelly's debut novel with Zebra Horror Books back in 1990, I think, 91. It's called Hindsight. It's about this girl that has second sight. He based it off of, I believe it was his uh, grandmother uh, who could see deaths of people. And it was a gift, but a curse. And um, it's based in Tennessee in the, I want to say the 40s, but I, it's around that era. It's, um, it's interesting. It's stuff that I, until Ronald came around in my life as a reader, uh, that I never dove into before. Like Southern, besides like Mark Twain or the classics like him, I never really read like heavy Southern stories. And it's it's 
It's cool because a Yankee boy like me would never write something like this, and I love it. Very uh, cool. Yeah, he's someone that I would definitely check into if you're, uh, you know, you want to check out some history and horror. He's starting the '80s with a short horror, and uh, still writing today. Uh, he's killing it. Um, where can people follow you? I'm on. I didn't make all my handles the same because that would just be too easy. Not organized <laughs> at all. <laughs> so on Twitter, I'm at Shelly C Fine Art. Uh, I've got a Facebook author page, Shelly Campbell Author and Art, and Instagram is Shelly Campbell Fine Art, and then the website is uh, www.shellycampbellauthorandart.com. Fantastic, and. Uh... Don't forget, listeners, you can go and get my ugly mug on a coffee mug or a uh, mask during the COVID times. Wear it as a Halloween mask or whatever. I, you know, it doesn't matter. Just check out the store. Or go to uh, deadheadspace.com. Just click on the store tab. We will have more merchandise later on. Check it out if you get a chance. Um, guys, is there anything that... We have not talked about any weird noises that you want to make before we sign out tonight. <laughs> I think I'm good to go. Okay, no we Can anybody do an old-timey car horn? That's always fun. Pat? You brought it up. You Pat? must have practiced. Oh, God. Nice. <laughs> I don't know what they sound like. That's that close, close enough. <laughs> that was an old-timey car horn going through puberty. <laughs> Next episode is with Lex H. Jones. That is upcoming Monday, so stick around for that. We have Cassie Daly on. We get into some fun talks about his book, uh, his latest book, Whistling Past the Graveyard. Then we dive into some serious topics that are pretty interesting about uh, being on the spectrum, and that is fascinating. It's very uh, educational for someone like myself that can learn a lot more about that topic. And that's uh, that's all we got. So, Shelly, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And, Brennan, thank you, sir, for being by my side always and forever. That's, uh, that's <laughs> ominous. <laughs> that's creepy as fuck. You have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for choosing us. Until next time. Deadhead space.